0: Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. You're listening to the DMZ America podcast with two of America's favorite political cartoonists. I am Ted Rall, and I'm coming to you from the left.
1: And I'm Scott Stanis coming to you from the right. And you're listening to episode one of season two. We actually made it through the first season. How cool is that? Sophomore slump is upon us. Oh, <laughs> we are so tuned oh my god I although i don't know that. if it's
0: really sophomore slump if it's two seasons yeah this is yeah, the 53rd episode i believe of you yeah. of the pod um yeah you know sophomore slump is an interesting phenomenon i always do you, do you remember that band the stranglers from the sure. late 70s early 80s sure. so they had uh an album i think it was called like radis norvegicus you know that really dates the name of the the time period that we're talking about anyway they i was kind of fascinated by this story uh, to avoid sophomore slump they went into the studio and they recorded several albums worth of material at the same time they didn't front load the first album with all their best shit they kept the quality level kind of even and when the sec- and the first album was a huge hit so they were able to follow up the set the sec- with the second album that sounded exactly the same at the same quality level so it was an even bigger hit because you know, fans always go back. They, you know, usually if there's a big first album, the second album kind of tends to be a disappointment, but they avoided yeah. that by by sort of doing it that way. And I always thought that was brilliant. We That's should have what, done that this with this podcast. We should have recorded all of the following season's podcasts. Which last would have year. been
1: problematic. What do we talk about? President Chelsea Clinton, what's up with her?
0: <laughs> President Donald Trump Jr. President Jared Kushner,
1: (laughs) the Trump Kushner ticket.
0: Yes. Uh, Well, so as we look down the stare down the barrel of uh, economic ruin, uh, it seems like this week. um, Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but Mm -hmm. possible imminent recession. Anyway, um, we should talk about economics. So one of the things that you and I always talk about, Scott, is sort of like what makes a good political cartoonist. And one of the things that we always, you and I agree on um, is that you should know if you're a political pundit, which we are, um, you should know what you would do if you became president. You should know, you should have a policy agenda. Like if tomorrow morning you woke up and inexplicably you were the president, um, you would know what you would do about issues like healthcare or unaffordable housing or uh, Ukraine or whatever you know you you know you you would have a good idea you wouldn't just sort of uh, you know draw funny cartoons uh, about each topic but you without any solutions in mind it doesn't mean you have to have the solutions in the cartoon but right, like right. but you should you should know as sort of a matter of principle you know like it to be a serious commentator um, like what you would do and I don't think you know many of our I think a lot of our colleagues could not do that maybe um, or well, don't no think of things that it. way
1: yeah no I've had conversations with cartoonists uh, successful cartoonists who literally refused to say what they would
0: do or what their policy to fix the se- this the problem would be like when they say you they refuse was it like a secret and, <laughs> no, and, and no, no,
1: they said the quote I'll or they just didn't know forever. The quote was uh, when they elect me to Congress, I'll let you know.
0: In other words, they didn't know. No, no. Well, you know, and it reminds me a little bit of H- I was reading H.R. Uh, Haldeman's diaries, which are if you have not read are fascinating. Oh, um, wow. That would be. And uh, they talked about how, you know, Richard Nixon, who we think of as a pretty ideological president, although I don't think that's really true. um, true. He he uh, but we thought of him at that time that basically Haldeman talked about how, like, you know, everything sort of like it's like in that uh, that in that movie, the Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, where at the end of the movie, and it's not a great movie, but it's got interesting tone and is worth seeing. um, And at the end, he goes, now what? And in other words, like you've, you've won this campaign, but now how are you going to govern? And it's two entirely different things. And, uh, you know, Rich Haldeman talks about how they were so focused in the Nixon camp on winning the presidency in a very tight election against Hubert Humphrey that it took them a long time to figure out their policies once they got in. He said that really they spent most of the first year literally trying to figure out the White House phone system um, like, I'm not kidding. That was like something he talked about. And they had to install the recording devices. <laughs> no, no, they they didn't. Those were already there, you know. Those went back, you know, those go back to at least Harry Truman. Um,
1: yeah, they I, they recorded uh, uh, phone conversations. And they're fascinating. They're just, you know, the Kennedy Library is now releasing the, um, or put on YouTube. So I'm sure they've probably been on YouTube for a while. But it's um, the conversations that President Kennedy had with different people.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating because, first of all, he he drops f bombs all over the place. Well, I would that doesn't surprise me in the least, but
1: well, it does when you're just not you're you're used
0: to ask not what your country (laughs) can do for you. Ask not what your fucking country can fucking (laughs) do for you, you motherfucker. (laughs) Exactly,
1: Exactly. bitches. It's fascinating, but yeah, go on. So, so yeah. So, there, but the thing is about the Nixon, and we can use this to dovetail into our, our question of the, of the question de jeu, as we say here, or de jeu. Okay. <laughs> Let's
0: answer. see. That's where the French passport comes into play. You know, the the French reserve the right, just like in, uh, you know, Pink, in the Pink Panther movies, where uh, he hires Cato to attack him to keep him sharp. The French embassy will send people by. If you're a French citizen, periodically wake you up at three in the morning and be like, quickly, what is the French, what is the French word for day? And if you say, then like they beat the shit out of you. So it's like you have to say, and they're like, mm, this time we'll let it, we will let it pass this time.
1: Here's, here's a,
0: baguette. <laughs> a baguette. Across your face, bitch. So, all right. So today's the theme of today's uh, episode, and I suspect neither the first time we've done this, nor will it be the last, um, is what would you do if you were the president? In other words, it's very easy to stand on the sidelines and criticize as which is our job and which we enjoy. Um, But, you know, if you were President Biden or you're just the president, you're President Scott Stantis, what would you do? to address economic problems. That's gonna be our first segment today. So we're officially in a bear market, uh, which means that uh, if there's a correction that has uh, dropped a 20% in a, I think it's a six month period is a bear market. Not, I could be mistaken about that. Uh, sanctions against Russia seem to be hurting the US and the West more than it is Russia. Uh, and not to mention of course, Russia is winning in Ukraine now um, and inflation is out of control. Uh, totally out of control. And yeah. it's pretty clear that the Fed uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't have a lot of room to work with um, except just to increase interest rates, which seems which likely work. to push us into a recession. So Scott, we'll start with you. Um you're you're the president of the United States. Uh it's you're six you're five months out from key midterm elections. You know you're gonna fucking lose. Uh, so what is your economic policy? A to stop the to reduce the hurt of inflation and uh, high oil prices the bear the the uh stop the bear market um, there's all sorts of problems in the real estate uh, sector too that we might want to yeah. talk about um, and of course uh, you know and so what would you do I mean Biden seems to be he's going to Saudi Arabia to suck up to uh, Mohammed bin Salman that's uh, some, yeah that's another I don't segment. know what good I'll that'll do better. I mean yeah you know whatever. Um, but what would you do? I mean, I is would there say, anything you can do?
1: I think the our policies. this is where this podcast is going to get interesting because our policies are going to be completely in polar opposite of each other. Um, we've seen other times, especially you, I, Ted and I grew up in the 70s where there was rampant inflation for a, a decade. Um, they tried desperately to tamp it down. Richard Nixon, who was mentioned earlier, tried price controls, which are stupid. And I'll tell you why. Wage uh, controls moment. too. Yeah, wage and price controls—stupid. For because there, anything, anytime you inject government fiat into any kind of economics, it always fucks up the economics. Um, Jerry Ford tried to make us wear buttons. Remember, win buttons. I think you have one, Chad. I do.
0: I have. A, I have a red one. I also have. I also have a, a, a whip. Inflation now playing cards. I swear to God. Oh my God! How much were they? <laughs> Just to ask. <laughs> uh, I think three bucks. Uh, maybe maybe um, seven now (laughs) uh yeah so so we
1: wore a button he literally gave us an address to congress wearing this goddamn win button and it was a a white lettering uh sans serif face on a red background it said win whip inflation now no policy behind it (laughs) pretty much just wishful thinking. Just win Jimmy Carter wins the presidency in 1976, gets sworn in 77, inflation starts to, continues to rage and gets worse, not better. Um, In fact, you're talking about inflation rate, I believe of eight, of what was it, 21% at one point, Um, interest rates, and this is where the Federal Reserve Board fucked things up, and and, um, interest rates were 18%. Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: Uh, You know, which I think for a generation, we've had interest rates of like, what, 1%, 2%, 3%. I mean, I know Janine and I refinanced the house here for like, you know, 3% or something just to get, you know, get the payments down. My first house we bought, the interest rate was 11%.
0: Yeah, I had had three and seven eighths on my house when I, at the time I sold it.
1: So, okay, so what would I, what would Scott do? First of all, I, there's no immediate relief. You just can't, it's just not going to happen. And to my mind, this is a supply lo- supply chain issue in large part. And people laugh at that and, oh, supply chain, blah, 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 just put it in a truck. It's not that easy. Production, and the best example I had, recent example is the baby formula shortage. They shut down a couple of baby formula factories because the, they had to up- they were told to upgrade them to certain levels. And they said, no, screw
0: it. And there were only like five major companies that really produced baby. I believe it's three. Oh, is
1: it? And so, okay. So, so you ask yourself this question, what happened in the eighties that changed everything? Inflation literally goes away. Um, Well, I
0: mean, I would say what happened in, in my memory was that the federal reserve slammed on the brakes with high interest rates. And then that pushed the, that pushed the economy into recession. Uh, and then that's what tanked. That's what put, brought an end to inflation was, uh, you know, a recession with, oh, not with like we didn't have high recession. unemployment. And Reagan inherited that in uh, 81 when he came into power.
1: Right. And, but he and also- then, so he
0: and he he was he had that to deal with really for, I'd say, a good, solid three years. And and the after effects really were more like five
1: right but there were recessions also don't forget stagflation we had an economy that was actually in reverse you, you know the average growth of g- gdp uh, g- gross domestic product back in the early 70s was like two percent everyone thought that was great well what happened was you if you free up markets and this is where you and i are going to disagree passionately totally and our, our my my take to, on this would be um a so open up the spigots everywhere you can uh do you you know go to saudi arabia and you know, and, and give head to the to the saudi prince we're going to discuss that in the next segment
0: and I'll that tell you appears that, that appears likely to be that will occur probably but
1: other domestic manufacture and that's where the biden administration came in shut a lot of that down and so pro- gas prices are going through the roof um supply chain and and you have to facilitate that make that easier all of these solutions are not quick fixes none of this will be fixed but I mean we're talking about six to ten months fixes and then you're going to see inflation come back down it's a supply and demand issue um you know can should you go after people who are price gouging whether're asking prices that people are paying um you know how you how you, how you how you punish them don't buy the product um you know and, and unless it's essential like water you know, gas food, g- gas food um but although gas is,
0: gas you can control right because a lot of people in not, mean, can, you know, we all drive in ways that are i mean those of us who drive we all do things that we don't really have to do i mean you, you have to drive to work you have to you drive to get groceries but you don't really have to drive on a weekend vacation or a mini trip or that kind of thing well
1: and the thing is around here i think around the country frankly if you travel you know how many fucking trucks are there out there, you know, the, the Ford 3000.
0: Oh, yeah, no. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's, that's an interesting point, right? I mean, is that um, we may, I mean, it's, it does, I know the that Fox and the right have been having a field day with this attitude, but Democrats are not entirely wrong when they say like, you know, hey, this, this crisis may be an opportunity to push us into a greener uh, kind of uh, economic Posture, although I kind of think we're headed in that way anyway. I mean, uh, the big three, four, the big three Detroit automakers have already announced that they're not going. Is it uh, by the year uh, twenty thirty two? They're not going to be producing yeah, any yeah. any internal combustion engine cars at all. It'll all be electronic uh, electric cars like Tesla. So it's kind of like you know, we're heading that, I don't really know that we need to do much. I mean, 10 years is a very short time in when you're talking about planning ahead for manufacturing. Um, So. So what drives, uh, what drives,
1: what drives prices up is lack of supply. And what you do is you facilitate. Yeah. Don't forget labor, labor
0: as well as, 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 as goods.
1: Right. But labor prices are going up and people, I mean, this is another issue where I think, um, I think you can have I would like to see in the United States, uh, I know that you're going to gasp now, but I'd like to see the rise of the union movement uh, in in private business. Public unions can go to hell, but private unions serve a vital purpose, and it's the only power you have. Listen, I've worked in an industry where we got fucked over all the time, Uh, and in the places where I worked in a right-to-work state, I joined the union because I know what management can do. Looking in the great for resignation. the
0: union label.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm serious. But I would like to see a construct like they have in Japan and Germany where the unions are actually in concert with and in partnership with their employers. You know, it's there, not like there aren't strikes there, but they work together. The books are open to the unions. The unions know, okay, you made this much money.
0: Yeah, the we unions can... have uh, seats on the board of directors. I worked at a Japanese bank, so I'm intimately aware, uh, you know, familiar with that structure. It, works,
1: it helps, you know, it helps. There's a lubricant between the, the natural agitation between management and, and and the workers.
0: But they also, again, those countries do not have CEOs who are paid $40 million a year to do dick also.
1: Well, I bet that the CEO of Mercedes probably makes pretty good scratch.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm sure, but I bet it's I bet it's not anything close to what, uh, you know, what we're talking about here. I will look that up. But right Nixon. Now. But let's
1: go back to the early to the early 70s where Richard Nixon installed a price and wage controls. And what happened was, yes, it did tamp down and, and stop the rampant inflation for a while problem with that is it doesn't address the underlying issues that are causing the inflation as soon as those constraints are lifted the prices go bananas
0: well yeah no that that is that's certainly what happened i was a big like my mom said at the time uh she was a single mom um she said that she hated richard nixon she hated the war uh she was a lefty but she but she said that she thought that nixon's wage and price controls had literally saved our lives she thought uh, you know, a, the, uh, a bag of sugar had shot up to $5 a bag, which would be high now. And this was like in the, you know, 1973, 74. And she thought like, like it was just like, but it, it is true that undeniably, as soon as wage and price controls were ceased, the pot, you know, they, they took the lid off the pot, and then it boiled over and it went even and inflation went even faster, the pressure had just built. But you know. There is a there's a counterfactual here, like India has sort of wage and price controls on all sorts of sectors all the time. And they just don't ever take the lid off the pot. It's it's kind of a semi-state controlled economy on major sectors like they, you know, it's not like your local uh, doll shop like is controlled by the state, but, but a lot of prices are annually set by the state. And, you know, uh, if i'm
1: not mistaken the focus of the price controls was uh, heavily focused on groceries you know on food items um, and but what that's going to do and what that has done is that demand goes down um, uh, or at least the the profit motive for the companies to produce these products goes down and they don't produce them Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what happened with baby formula now they're, they're starting these factories back up and I'm not suggesting this one factory that was shut down, and I forget where it was it probably was Ohio isn't everything that gets shut down in Ohio. <laughs> it's, yeah. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that they have, you know, rat droppings and. And you know pencil shavings and the baby formula, but there, there, there's in all things is a compromise, and let markets be markets, and let and that's what I would do is free up markets.
0: Except that's what Herbert Hoover thought too. By the way, parenthetically, um, I just want to say uh, the 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 uh, the person who uh, the, the the head of Mercedes Benz uh, makes two hundred and eleven thousand dollars a year. <coughs> Sorry, bless you. So, yeah, two hundred and eleven thousand.
1: Okay, but but what are what are the goodies? What are the benefits? I'm sure he gets stock options up the wazoo. I
0: would um, bet
1: he or she does not make two hundred thousand a year.
0: No, that's that's that seems to be it. Yeah, yeah. It's not like like for example, there's uh, Daimler. Uh, that guy, he gets a lot. He gets like uh, one point four seven million in variable compensation and 3.5 million in stock. So, yeah, uh, yeah, but that's different. But like, yeah, Benz, they don't, They Benz has a low, I mean, it's, it was amazing. When I worked at uh, Industrial Bank of Japan Trust Company, the president of the New York branch made $140,000 a year. Um, bear in mind, it was the second largest bank in the world at the time. And that's all he made. There were no stocks or anything like that.
1: Well, I think there is a grotesque. and uh, the, the New York Times did an interesting article on how um, uh, Jack, oh gosh, what was his name? He ran GE, Jack Walsh. Um, and how he kind of changed the dynamic that GE was very proud of the fact that it shared its income. It, shared, it was one of the biggest companies in the world, and it shared and its its workers were paid well. Everyone working for them was compensated well. Uh, the CEO did not make a bazillion. The stock was a solid. You know, remember the nineteen sixties
0: kind of stocks? They were solid. IBM, mm-hmm. you know, GE. Sure.
1: And they're solid, they did
0: not huge returns, but you weren't going to, you
1: know, you're, you well, also- they had need... great
0: dividends, if you remember, that was a big difference. Yes,
1: and that's the other thing is they shared the, the money with the, with the investors, Jack Walsh comes and changes all that to like, and compensates the top 10 executives with princely salaries and kind of set the, the, the standard going forward. I
0: still so, don't understand the fucking logic of that. Cause it's not like you can't get good help for less. I mean, what well, exactly is? I have literally studied this for years. I've never heard a good answer. Maybe you can help me, Scott. Like, what's the logic behind paying like any one human being forty million dollars a year?
1: But the logic is that they are worth. They 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 make your company so incredibly valuable, and and they often do.
0: Um, you know, and that, yeah, but but yeah. The, the, you could pay the same exact dude. Four million dollars a year and get the same exact results. You could,
1: uh, I, I agree, but I think all you also have an incestuous system in place where
0: they vote he, each other so, He raises. sits on
1: on CEO B's board, and those two guys sit on CEO C's board. Yeah, and they go out for drinks at their exclusive club where you and I would never be admitted. Right, and they go, "Hey, who needs a raise?"
0: Yeah, that's right. It's like I like, I love you, you love me. <laughs> we're a happy family yeah but screw the workers and everyone else so wait but the thing is i i do have to call you out on this like well, let markets be markets i mean look let's say fair economics leads to like for example with reagan a very slow recovery uh from the from recession uh herbert hoover didn't really uh although i think he he is like sort of unjustly maligned for this but he he uh he didn't, he was viewed as not having done enough, quickly enough. Um, government intervention can, I mean, you know, I, I I haven't said what I would do yet, but I mean, you surely just sort of like letting, you know, letting the invisible hand of the marketplace do its thing, you know, it doesn't always work. It doesn't. And I
1: think that Two, you have to be sure that the government doesn't stick its nose in and make and pick winners and losers. That's the worst thing government does of almost anything in my twisted worldview. Why?
0: I mean, you guys always say that. Why? Government picks winners and losers all the time. And what's so, know, wrong? And what's so bad usually about bad? It bucks them? things up royally. Well, give me an example. Um
1: and that's a, oh God, why do you do this? It's early in the morning, Ted. <laughs>
0: the coffee hasn't come back. And you're an hour behind.
1: Well, I'm trying, well, okay, here's the thing. Well, the baby formula, let's go back, shall we? And because of government policies, government, there is a bunch of competition, meaning the prices were low, um, supplies were high. Um, and the government sticks its nose in and starts saying, okay, these guys are doing it right. You're doing it wrong.
0: Well, I mean, the safety, surely society has an interest in baby formula being, you know, held to the highest possible right, health, health and safety that's, standards.
1: And you and I both would love to live <laughs> in a world where that was true. And I'd like to see rainbow, you know, uh, uh, unicorns fart and rainbows. That's just not going to happen, Ted. And that's not where this the winners and losers, you know how they become winners and losers. I can tell by the, our listeners can't see the look on your face. Um the baby formula cabal spends a fuck ton of money and gives the you know the senior senator from the great state of who the fuck knows where that is uh, a bazillion dollars for his campaign. They go back to Washington and they say, oh, you know what, you know your baby formula is so much better than the you know the the, 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 the that little factory out of Ohio. They should or- shut down, don't you think?
0: Yeah. You or, yeah. Well, so yeah. Okay, that's true to some extent, but I mean, like, for example, um, you know, the government, you know, I would love to see the government pick a winner and a loser in like the automobile sector. I would love for them to have said years ago, things like SUVs should be illegal, Um, you know, or like one of the things that drives me nuts is here in New York, we have parkways where only, you know, trucks and buses are not allowed, right? SUVs, uh, got they are allowed to have lower fuel emission standards than uh, p- regular passenger sedans because of their chassis. They have a truck chassis. And so yet they're allowed to drive on parkways. And by the way, their studies show that SUVs like disproportionately cause more traffic, which means more pollution and more climate change, right? I mean, literally two SUVs, is it creates as much traffic as three passenger sedans because they uh, accelerate more slowly and people who drive them tend to be just slower, shittier drivers. So, um, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, they should be illegal. The government should ban them. They should have been banned years ago. Or it's like, if you have one, uh, yeah, you can't drive it on a parkway, you know, because it's a truck and, you know, and you should be, maybe you should be taxed when at the pump, I mean, You know, you just mentioned it yourself, the giant oversized pickup trucks, people who drive them are, uh, you know, they don't give a shit about the planet fine but you should pay for that. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with that picking those winners and those losers.
1: Because it picks winners and losers and doesn't let people make choices for on their own. At the core of my philosophy, my political philosophy is personal choice. But and then, personal like, responsibility. So, then, so
0: then, like, hey, let people let kids buy AR 15s, let kids uh, smoke, you know, like when we were kids, buy cigarettes at the age of 16. Uh, why not let them buy cannabis? Okay. <laughs> You're cool <laughs> with all that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm AR 15s, really? Not AR
1: 15s You and I are going to. I mean, I, I actually can have a fairly reasoned approach to guns. I um,
0: the second. I mean, that, you know, this is the but, this is uh, the fifty third podcast. People have heard you call for government intervention in all sorts of things on this. There thing. is, and
1: I but I have to be very cautious about that, Ted. And I think that this is when it comes to economics. If you're in, you're talking about how do you right now. We're talking about how do you fix inflation, and I do want to turn the tables quick soon and talk about what President Raw would do. But I would say my solution would be. In the short run, it would be opening up markets. That is facilitating in whatever uh, government can do to help facilitate uh, and uh, fix and correct the supply chain problems we're having now. Uh, in addition, uh, for the fuel, and it's all driven in large part by the fuel costs and how do you how do you lower the fuel costs? And that's by increased production. I mean that's as simple as that. And uh, so you, you know, the more of the thing you have, the less it's going to cost. That's Easy peasy. That's my, that's my solution. What president Rawl, you've been in office now. This is your first press conference. What is your solution to the. Well, to, so to the inflation situation.
0: Good morning, Mr. And Mrs. America. I have this strange voice inexplicably because I'm now the president of the United States. Um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, first and foremost, look, I, I don't think, I think that uh, inflation, the supply chain, I agree with your, um, with your diagnosis, supply chain has caused problem. That and the great resignation has is driving inflation. That and the sanctions against Russia, which has uh, impacted fuel prices, fuel fuel prices have a massive ripple ap- effect on the economy. They they make uh, you know anybody who's tried to buy an airplane ticket or this in you know in the last month knows what I'm talking about. Uh, you you might be like, well, oh, why are hotel prices higher? Well, hotels have a lot of fuel expenses. Um, so. And every time, you know, you see a box of detergent in the store, it had to be trucked from somewhere to arrive there. So, uh, you know, that is a so and I don't think I I think that was an inevitable result of the lockdown followed by the reopening. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of short sightedness here uh, where it was like, well, we're going to shut down the we're going to shut down everything and worry about the after effects later. Um, Inflation is going to be with us for a while. Um, The Fed's going to do its thing. I would definitely abolish the Russia sanctions. They were insane. Uh, they were a, a huge economic disaster um, that, you know, that's impacting Americans. Russia's kind of sanction proof. They, they, you know, Putin sort of saw a lot of this coming like 10 years ago, um, after like the uh, you know, the war with Georgia. Um, and so there were sanctions then and after Crimea. So, you know, it's not like this comes, any of this comes as a big surprise to them. Um I would say that uh, what we really need to focus on is helping Americans get through it. So, uh, you know, you have to be careful because like, let's say you subsidize gas prices. Well, then, you know, that could cause more inflation because, uh, you know, in the same way that um, government student loan programs uh, have greatly encouraged colleges to increase uh, their tuition Faster than the rate than the rate of inflation for decades, so you have to be careful. But a lot of people are in more trouble than there used to be. So I would I would definitely expand the welfare state enormously. Um, I, I think work programs would be uh, sort of WPA style work programs, like Bernie Sanders wanted, um, like me and other people have argued over the years, uh, need to be instituted to bring people back into the workplace, rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. Uh, and, uh, you know, and just sort of give people some purpose other than uh, sitting in the middle of in flyover country, like, you know, s- uh, snorting opioids um, and committing suicide. Um, so uh, I think we need to put money into people's pockets in a, in a judicious way. Um, we need to stop subsidizing sectors that are kind of out of control in an inflationary way, like real estate. Uh, real estate's a highly subsidized sector, uh, you know, through the tax code. Um, ah. You know, it's like especially commercial real estate. I would, uh, re- you know, I wouldn't do what Trump did, like completely abolishing, uh, you know, like just targeting the blue states by, you know, sort of fucking over homeowners in uh, in states where real estate is high. But there are other ways, like you could, you know, you could, for example, impose national rent control. Uh, that would keep real estate uh, prices down. Um, Real estate going up way too fast. It's like basically if you're 25, I don't know how you can buy a house or a condo these days. Um, I also think that we need sort of, this is not directly related to inflation, but we really need government control and even nationalization of key economic sectors. Uh, you know, so basically, if something is essential, and if the government can't do, if people in society can't function without something, then the government needs to look at supplying it. Um, baby formula is an example of that. Um, if private industry is incapable of keeping, or now um, tampons, um, if if you know tampons are an essential product, if private industry isn't capable for whatever reason uh, uh, of, of keeping these things on the shelves. Um, the you know the federal government should nationalize uh, or use the War Production Act to ensure that these things get where they need to be. Look at what happened in the early days of the pandemic. There should have been warehouses full of civil defense uh, N95 masks uh, by the billions, waiting for a pan- a possible future pandemic. George W. Bush of, of all thing of all people um, anticipated this back in 2004 2005. He had a he had a, uh, a, pan, a blue ribbon panel issue recommendations about what to do in the event of a future uh, coronavirus type pandemic that that uh, epidemiologists have anticipated for many decades. Uh, it's not like it's it's always gonna happen from time to time. And they recommended that there be masks and ventilators just waiting to go. Instead, it was like literally like, sorry, we just don't have any. What do you mean you don't have any? Like it's absurd. So, um, I think that, uh, you know, we're kind of been fucked over by something called just-in-time inventory, you know, in- uh,
1: Oh yeah, yes, Uh, that's a great point, please explain. So just-in-time inventory
0: kind of was popularized. uh, It began in the 80s and really became widespread in the 90s. And basically what it is, is in the old days of manufacturing, um, let's say Frigidaire, which was based in my hometown of Dayton, uh, would ship refrigerators all over the United States. And uh, in every county, there'd be some warehouse full of frigidaires, uh, waiting to go out to stores um, and for, for people to buy in their homes. That sort of stopped, and they were like, well, you know, uh, keeping, maintaining all this Uh, inventory is expensive so uh the bean counters figured out instead what we'll do is we'll just target uh the the number of refrigerators that need that are actually have been purchased or are on order from a store or from a consumer so that's it's sort of like a great illustration of that is when you go on amazon to buy something like a book and they'll say only two left and uh that means there's literally at the Amazon warehouse, maybe your Amazon warehouse, maybe nationally, there's literally only two. And once they're gone, then Amazon will reorder them and restock them possibly. But it's not like, but if you wanted, like, say, 50 books, copies of the new Scott Stantis Prickly City collection, you would, you would not be able to get them from Amazon. Uh, they would first, you would basically be told like, okay, your order is on, you're on order, then they would ask your publisher, they would order them for your publisher, your publisher would print them, the consumer might get them a month or two later. Um, That's sort of how the whole national economy works now. And it means that there's, this is why there's a supply chain problem. I mean, it's almost like you need the government to make just-in-time inventory illegal in key sectors. Maybe it doesn't matter you know, fucking video game cartridges. Not that anyone uses them anymore, right? That people download (laughs) video games. But, you know, I mean, stuff that's, like, not important, like, uh, you know, uh, Pez dispensers, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) The point is that, like, you don't really need those, whatever. But, like, tampons, they should have to have them in in warehouses ready to go so that in the event that like the cotton isn't available to make them, we're not going to be completely without fucking tampons.
1: Yeah, I, I would uh, looking over President Rawls' program, I agree with one
0: aspect, <laughs> which is uh, one more than getting, I would have expected.
1: Getting cracking on infrastructure, which has been long overdue in this country, it's a good employer engine, but it's also just necessary. I don't, I'd like the idea of going over a bridge and not having it collapse. You know, I'm yeah, old fashioned. It's a win. Um, National price controls, again, I don't, they, they. anytime you've messed with an economy, it it drives it, you know, you can't keep those, you have to keep those controls in place, like you said, forever. And then if I manufacture baby formula and you keep the price controls on for 10 years, I haven't been able to increase the price for, in any serious way for 10 years, I'm gonna say, fuck it. Why would I keep making this stuff? Uh, I'm not making, I'm making, you know, 0.3% profit.
0: well, wage I and price controls don't mean that you can't raise prices. It just means that your price, the amount of which you can increase them, is limited.
1: Right, uh, but you're also telling the manufacturer and the person who's making it, here's your profit. Here's how much you're allowed to make, and that seems uh, highly un-American, and it kind of sucks the motivation out of out of that that business. That there's no reason to go into it. Um, nationalizing everything, th- i just makes my skin crawl because, again, that doesn't usually work very, very well. Um,
0: the, the, but there's, you know, I don't some- know. I mean, fl- flagship. Air, look at fl- look at the European flagship air carriers. Um, those those are, you know, for many of them are owned by their respective governments, and they provide a superior level of service and are profitable. Um, and that's an example. Like, you can't really have. A, you know aviation should not be private it's like it's an essential service it's not just carrying people around to business meetings and to vacations which is important but it's also uh you know carrying cargo um and mail um you right. know and and it's like it's you can't do without it i mean right now uh you know it it costs about a thousand dollars to fly from new york to los angeles um, doll that's kind of, it should be like closer to 450. Um, So, I mean, the point is that like, that makes, you know, it's kind of like freezing up the US. It's literally stopping mobility. I mean, you can't really have that. This should be something that's like, it's part of transportation's essential service. It shouldn't be based on the whims of, you know, five CEOs.
1: Well, but there, but I would also jump in and say with aviation, you talk about Moving cargo, then you, know, you wouldn't have had the ascent of Fed, Federal Express or of UPS or of the other companies now that move these you know things for for cheaper. You wouldn't have the ascent of cheaper airlines like Southwest, for instance. Um, not so cheap right now, but, uh, but where you had bargain basement and you had competition in pricing, so it did drive down prices. You're right; it's cost you know from Birmingham to uh, Los Angeles would be 250 bucks now. It's uh, God, we were just looking to fly to Portland, Oregon for, uh, uh, for my great aunt and uncle's anniversary, and it was thirteen hundred bucks each. Yeah, for
0: Janine and I. I mean, I'm not. Well, it is it is each. Just because you're married, you don't get to sit like she doesn't get to sit on your lap.
1: But she fits. <laughs> this is me my lap,
0: my lap spouse.
1: <laughs> yeah, she can be my comfort. I mean, that might be fun, <laughs> but. She can help. She has, She does help my anxiety. It is each. She can be my comfort person. She can be my comfort animal.
0: Yeah, she could be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> so you Actually, and I- you have to pay for a comfort animal? Yeah, you don't. No, you don't. No, and it really
1: pisses me off. You've just touched on it. We, that's another podcast because it really pisses me I off. I loved
0: the comfort peacock. That was famous I know that at, was, at JFK. Amazing. That was so, it was brilliant, but I was getting- out I of kind plane. of want to see, I just wanted to see, I just want to be on a plane that has a peacock on it. Well, I'm like, heard, I'd be happy to put up with like the, you know, the poo and whatever. And the, the, the unearthly noise that, oh, you're yeah. incredibly loud. The noise I mean, is incredible. Can you imagine of that echoing on the plane?
1: True story, Ted, this guy, this young guy had his comfort dog or whatever the fuck they call it. And that's the thing is, by the way, those the emotional
0: dogs, support dog.
1: Right. And those emotional support dogs are extremely dangerous. And I'll tell you why. <laughs>
0: No, 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 no. no not, get, I'm going to get a t shirt that says that and mail that to you. Emotionally, <laughs> emotional support dogs are extremely dangerous.
1: <laughs> well, they're dangerous in that the service animals for the blind, uh, animals that are. Uh, you know, keyed into people who have epilepsy. Uh, they certainly a lot of service dogs out there. They're they're very specifically trained and disciplined and having another animal in their vicinity is extremely distracting to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, and so I'm getting on this plane. This guy has his, his, his emotional support dog. This thing is the size of you, Ted. It's massive. It's this huge, and he's taking up the bulkhead in two seats because this dog is sprawled on the floor. <laughs> it's like Marmaduke. And he didn't have to pay, you know, that's two seats less the airlines had to sell. It's two seats less that uh, comfortable seats where people who were in wheelchairs and walkers needed to sit. <laughs> this asshole brought his fucking dog because he needs his fucking dog for the one and a half hours it takes for the flight.
0: Well, maybe he was moving.
1: I don't care. You, what you do is you, you put the dog in a crate and put the crate in the hold and you and then you pick your dog up after you land.
0: If your dog's uh, still alive.
1: Unless it's a service dog. No, I'm sorry. I'm, it just makes me crazy that now dogs are fucking everywhere. And it's like,
0: and, and finally, you're, you're finally, totally nothing. You're going to totally hate my emotional support rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> if they had T-Rexes, I'd have one of those. <laughs>
1: you're right. So anyway, okay, I got tangent. Done. I think I need
0: an emotional support flamethrower drone. Although they're oh, not, we all need that. although with, and with AI there, you know, as we know, AI is now sentient, according to an engineer at Google. So, um, you know, it's that means that the emotional support. It's possible that it would be considered alive. So. It's alive. Could, it's alive, and it's, it's angry. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, I think we've. Uh, I don't know if we've really solved the the. Account. No, no,
1: no. You and I are at very different ends of the. Well, we, we both start.
0: agree inflation is like. Look, let's face it. I don't think there's. I don't think God himself could fucking, if he existed, could do shit about inflation between now and the midterms. I mean, there's, oh, a, no. No, 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 there's no, no one can do it. This is, this is a train that is out of control.
1: Yeah, and this is, I mean, and I do blame the president for this. I mean, for, for I think, um, fuel costs alone. But just the, the, the tone deafness, and this comes back to what Ted and I have mentioned a million times, is that he's too fucking old. By the way, did you see uh, David Axelrod? Come out and I, say that that, yeah. that Joe Biden's too fucking old?
0: Well, I mean, duh, duh. I mean, <laughs> I love I love how, like, how you know, like breaking news. People like you and I have been talking about this shit for years. And I'm okay with being ignored, but but we've been ridiculed, you know. Yeah. Um, like, oh, how do you? Like, you know, <laughs> you're, you know, like we're a bunch of ageist shits. Uh, you know, like, what do you mean? He's not, he's there's no senility there. He's sharp as attack. And it's like, and now finally it's like well somehow now this is the very same thing that people on the right have said and those of and progressives and just people who are honest which are few and far between now suddenly it's officially sanctioned in the Washington Post and by David Axelrod and in the New York Times so yeah. therefore it's now the our opinion is now officially acceptable i mean and do not fucking tell me that joe you know joe biden suddenly tipped into senility like over the last year we right. saw this a few years ago and it was a it, we weren't just saying it because we were mean we were saying it because it was a real legitimate concern it's true and with, with inflation
1: you know don't forget the white house's first reaction was that doesn't that's not true that was the first reaction that's biden true. White House. the second reaction was it's not gonna be bad. It's just-, just It won't just, be for long. Yeah, it's gonna be, it's just markets flip, opening up- Bump in the road. Bump in the road. And then now all of a sudden they're going, oh, you mean that inflation? <laughs> just for I well, love.
0: I mean, the question is, okay, let's just say they had said, I mean, obviously it's hard to predict the future, right? And so, but let's just say they'd been right. And they'd said, early, and they were honest, and they said early on uh, we're, you know, this is inflation's gonna be with us for a while. It's gonna be a serious problem what, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just asking what difference would that have made, really?
1: Uh, I think one of the things that made Franklin Roosevelt a great president, and we should probably Leave on this one, but it's just, I don't know, I've mentioned this before, but C SPAN on the 200th anniversary of the presidency ran a bunch of film of presidents as far back as they could go. And they had one of FDR, and he's at um, Hot Springs, I believe, it was in Georgia. Was it his? the That's right. Mm-hmm. And it was, he, he was turning it into a place for kids to re- recover from polio, which he, of course, suffered from as well. And he turned 59 or whatever, he had a birthday, and they bring out this lumpy <laughs> homemade chocolate cake. And by the time he's done talking about it and joining it to the kids, you would swear that was the best chocolate cake in the history of cakes. And that was the kind of guy he was. I mean, um, uh, Winston Churchill, I believe, said he was a second-rate intellect, but a first-rate temperament. And there's something to be said for that, that having someone in power saying that, yeah, you know what, I get it. This is going to be hard. And here's what we're going to do to but the Democrats aren't even saying what they're doing to fix it. They're saying literally nothing other than kind of scrambling, fumbling, bumbling. And just to tease our next segment going to despots and begging them to be nice to us.
0: True. All right. And with that, we will come back and talk about uh, human rights policy as part of foreign policy uh, in the United States. Uh, what would you do, Scott Stantis, about foreign policy right after the break? Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Uh, You're listening to the DMZ America podcast. Coming to you from the left, I'm Ted Rall.
1: And coming to you from the right, I'm Scott Stantis.
0: And for the second segment, we are going to talk about human rights policy. Jimmy Carter, who uh, is probably going to drop dead any second now, uh, made human rights an important part of US foreign policy, at least in theory. Um, but now uh, Joe Biden is, uh, who has sort of inherited the, the 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 relic, the vestiges of that policy, is uh, finding himself in one month traveling to Saudi Arabia to meet with the guy who ordered the butchering of Washington Post columnist uh, and contributing writer Jamal Khashoggi in the most disgusting way. Let's just remind everyone he was lured to the consulate to uh, to in order to get a marriage permit in Istanbul. The Saudis uh, had sent a hit team there. They, uh, they grabbed him, they attacked him, they slit his throat, they chopped him up into little pieces, they dissolved him in acid, and they dumped him down the sewer. That's what Saudi Arabia is. So uh, on the other hand, if you're Joe Biden, you're trying to increase. You're trying to ask the Saudis, as one of the world's most major major oil producing and exporting states, to increase production uh, in order to make up for Russian oil that uh, is being uh, kept out of the global marketplace. Not really kept out of the global marketplace, but kept out, of, kept away from the West, um, and and causing soaring energy prices. Uh, if the Saudis do what. Biden wants then hopefully energy prices will drop you know is it worth it is it uh, you know should you, human rights even be part of us foreign policy you know president Stantis, do you feel that uh, we should have a real politique based foreign policy that is purely based on naked self interest of the of america and its economy and its uh, interests or should we care what happens in other countries bearing in mind that you know, the United States isn't exactly a paragon of virtue when it comes to human rights. Uh, we're better than most. Um, I don't know. If you're black and you see the flashing red and the uh, black and white coming up behind you, I don't know if you feel that way.
1: Well, I would say there's, there, there's obviously like uh, Guantanamo where the, we, we are clearly not... Living our best lives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be true. Um, and, and numerous other black sites that nobody uh, talks about.
1: It was one of those issues when Jimmy Carter said that and established that policy, a lot of people on the, in the center and in the right said that's that's impossible. And it is impossible if that is the only core or if that is the main purpose of your foreign policy. Especially, He couldn't, in, he
0: couldn't do it himself. He was coddling the Shah of Iran. Well, and in others, you know, I mean, it's just- In Latin America at the time, yeah.
1: And he tried to, and he, don't forget, he had SALT two agreements with the, Soviet, with the Soviet Union, which had, you know, one or two <laughs> human rights violations of their own. Um, I think you have to take, you know, you take a case by case and human beings, why we can't have, you know, this thing where you can take it case by case. Um, it, the, when Jimmy Carter did this too, we were still in the height of the Cold War, we're still, there's still the idea of the spheres of influence. So, you know, we're going to coddle I don't know some despot in, in a part of Africa that really doesn't concern us. But if that went into becoming a Soviet, you know, a Soviet puppet, then other area and they could, you know, slippery slope dominoes, you know, the whole, the whole rigmarole there. I think in terms of like, P.J. Rourke, I'm just going to talk about oil for a second and going and talking to Saudi Arabia and say, you know, all this, no, you know, why, why don't send people to die for oil? And P.J. Rourke, the great, the great, the late, sadly, great uh, right, conservative commentator said, why not? It's one of the things you should, you probably want to die for is your, is your very essence of your economy and your existence is, is energy. So um, do you suck it up? say, okay, torturing, slaughtering uh, an American citizen. Was he an American? Was Jamal was
0: Khashoggi? No, he wasn't. He was a green card holder. But, you okay. know, I mean, an American green card holder still is entitled to significant legal oh, protections. Oh, you forgot to mention protections. at a very important point of, that, of
1: your story about Khashoggi was this happened on American soil. This wasn't No, 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 no. It like,
0: happened in Turkey.
1: Did it happen in Turkey where he was brought? Wait, wait. So help me here. It uh, happened
0: in Istanbul. What happened was that he, he was uh, divorced and he was engaged to someone new, and uh, as a Saudi national, he needed to get a, a marriage permit from the Saudi government. Um, they lured him to the, to the, to the uh, they made an appointment, they, were, they suggested you should come to the consulate, I don't know if he was in Europe or whatever at the time, but for whatever reason, he went to the consulate in Istanbul, Turkey.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And by the way, the reason we know about all this is because this pissed off the Turks to no end. And uh, President Erdogan uh, was so angry that he was willing to not only reveal the fact that the Turks had the Saudi consulate completely wired for sound, um, but they released the audio of uh, of, of the murder. So we know word for word, you can listen to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi on the internet. Well, then
1: you're right. I mean, I I, I apologize for having my facts screwed up in my head. I should have
0: looked, done research. Uh, But But he was still a U.S. green card holder. Does that mean he's still- And a contributor to the Washington Post. Well, and I get that, but- um, I mean, you know, a green card holder is basically- A green card holder is basically almost a citizen. I mean, they have all the rights of a citizen, except they can't vote. Um, I mean, that's true about, like, say, uh, American- Who's born here and who, uh, or who, who's naturalized, who's a fel- convicted felon in many states, they're still a, an American. Just c- the only thing they can they can't do is vote. I mean, well, they're I Americans. Know. I mean, he could. If you have a green card, you can become a citizen. And I'm going to throw this out there,
1: um, and I'm going to sound very Ted Rawlish right now.
0: <laughs> so dun, 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 dun. how can in the
1: United States that sends drone strikes against people we don't like, no due process? No, you know, uh, we, we blow them up. We, uh, you know, and many members of their family, but, you know, that, that, that can happen to the best of us. My point is that morally, how do you have a foreign policy based on human rights when you don't exercise them yourselves? I think the, the wars in Afghanistan, and Iraq, and this is where Ted and I did agree, really corrupted and corroded the standing of the United States as uh, as a legitimate world power and a power for good and a power for human rights. Because, again, um, you know, I think everyone agrees in public that the, assault, that the killing of Osama bin Laden, we track him down, we found him and we said, oh, I
0: don't agree with that. Yeah,
1: I don't know. We said a hit squad. We didn't. Have, and they say, well, could you imagine the spectacle of him being, you know, going to in front of a court. I go, absolutely. How, what a beautiful example to the rest of the world that we are a nation of
0: laws. Well, not to mention it would have completely degraded his prestige in the Muslim world. I mean, think about Slobodan Milosevic, the, uh, you know, former president of Serbia. You know, he seemed small and insignificant when he was on trial at The Hague or Saddam Hussein also seemed small and insignificant uh, while he was on trial. I mean, you know, they fucked up with Saddam by the way that they executed him. Uh, But Milosevic, by the time he died, it was like not even like worth mentioning. If Osama bin Laden had been uh, provided with a fair trial and convicted and sent to prison, he would have eventually have died and, you know, no one would have cared. And doesn't that play into the idea that people don't have faith in the
1: institutions of the United States. And it starts with the own government with its own policies that- well, you, have you
0: know why they executed of bin Laden. And they did, right? I mean, like not everybody who's listening to us knows, but you can look it up. It's not a weird conspiracy theory. They captured him alive. He was wounded. He absolutely he was not seriously grievously wounded. He absolutely would have survived his wounds. Um, the president uh, and secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, were watching in the situation room uh, via body cams that the uh, SEALs Team Six was wearing. They were like, we've captured him. And, uh, you know, basically it was like, do we have permission to take him out? And uh, the president said yes. So they, ex- they, they, fucking, they captured him alive, very alive, and then they killed him. They didn't want him alive because he was going to be a fucking embarrassment once he opened his mouth on the witness stand and talk- started talking about his long, cozy relationship with the CIA throughout the 1980s and 90s.
1: Well, that's and- not a secret. I mean...
0: It's a secret to most Americans. Most people have no idea that he was our little, that, you know, Bin Laden was our, was our buddy.
1: No, it was our, the enemy of our enemy is our
0: friend. And that's where that relationship came from, uh, fighting yeah. the Russians and, um, but- Which by the way, we never should have done. I mean, Afghanistan today would not be, would be now a secular socialist uh, country with equal rights for women under Soviet control. If, uh, if not for our invasion, that we literally put, we created, radicalized uh, the jihadis that are now running the show. Over well, there.
1: not to mention that they also would have had a few human rights, you know, gulags, if a gulag here, a gulag
0: there, what's the difference, right, Ted? Well, I mean, hey, hey, you're talking about the country that's currently, uh, you know, keeping, uh, instead of giving Edward Snowden the ticker tape parade down Broadway that he deserves, is keeping him, uh, you know, in exile in Russia, effectively stateless, and that is asking our our butt boys over in the UK to torture Julian Assange, and they're going to, they're trying to kill him, and they're probably going to succeed. I mean, you know, and he's like, again, he deserves, that man deserves a Pulitzer Prize. Hmm. In, uh, in journalism.
1: I would, but I'm I getting back to the assassination of um, Osama bin Laden is that they also just just showed that the, the government itself at the highest level and, you know, liberal, I'm saying, I'm doing air quotes here, liberal leadership at the time with President Obama did not believe in the institutions of the United States that bringing him, bringing him here, trying him in a court in New York. Um, or even better
0: yet, yeah, turn him over to The Hague. In order to show respect for international, uh, you know, concerns, don't forget Bin Laden's cur- like murderous career began in East Africa, right, with the bombings of the uh, embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, and a lot, and mostly that killed Kenyans and Tanzanians. Um, so, you know, then there was the bombing of the USS Cole. And then uh, and finally, 9-11. I mean, by the time he got around to New York and Washington and, uh, you know, and Pennsylvania. OK, it, fair enough. It, it, you know, he'd, he'd kill people all over the world. And I think it would have shown a lot of um, respect for international institutions to turn him over to the Hague, which which has proven that they can do a good job.
1: And exactly. And again, it would have shown that we believe in Western institutions, the rule of law. You know, um, and we we've shown that we don't believe that. Well, is it a, is it that big a jump to go from there to 2022, where you have a, a political party that says, you know, uh, with zero evidence that an election was stolen, and that we have to ch- and that we have to change the election processes? Well, you know, that's going you know where that's going. We've all seen that that playbook. <laughs> So it's um, so going back to the original question: Should human rights drive American foreign policy? Should it be like? Yeah, I
0: don't think I don't think anyone's arguing that it should drive foreign policy, but I think everyone's it it has been argued that it should be a substantial, uh, you know, factor when considering what to do.
1: I'm going to sound incredibly cynical here, which is part of my charm. I think many you, terms. when it's convenient at this stage of, of, of America of, of global politics, uh, we don't make, need to worry about dominoes falling or all that. So if there's a dictator, we a never bombing, had to worry
0: about dominoes which following. What's that? I mean, we, we never had to worry about dominoes falling. Although now we're talking about now they're talking about China in that context, right? Yeah, they're like,
1: trying to trying to gin up that kind of outrage. And I think China is, frankly, a bigger threat to the United States and to Western values than Russia
0: ever was. Maybe Western, maybe, maybe the Western economy more to the point.
1: Well, yeah, that's true, too. But I think Western values in terms of, again, rule of law, you know, uh, uh, old-fashioned ideas of free speech, you know, things like
0: that. Um, well, rule oh, of, rule of law hasn't really been our bag for a while, right? Well, I mean, but that, but that, that comes drones, back that. I mean, fucking drones, I mean, yes, a drone, invade, it invades the airspace of a foreign sovereign nation and then kills and then assassinates people extrajudicially on their territory. I mean, just imagine if you took the drone aspect out of it, um, you know, in, let's say, 1960, a plane invades a country, the airspace of another country, and drops a bomb on someone in that country. That's an act of war. Well,
1: and again, if we're going to talk about foreign policy, I mean, and human rights, that's that's a theme of human rights. It's just we decide we don't like Mohammed something, something. Um, We're sending a drone and we kill him. No trial.
0: Mm -hmm. No. And if without even knowing, by the way, if it's Muhammad something, something down there that we're actually blowing up.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, Ted. Didn't wasn't it wasn't it? Uh, Barack Obama administration, his Justice Department that decided that it's OK to they haven't done it, but it's OK if they feel, feel they're an eminent threat to kill an American on American soil.
0: That No, you're absolutely right. Uh, what happened was that um, the attorney general under Obama, who actually, as government officials go, is a pretty thoughtful uh, you know, respectable guy, I forget the guy's name. Um, he was asked at a congressional hearing about this subject uh, concerning drones. Would it be acceptable? Would it be legal for uh, an American president to order the assassination of an American citizen on American soil? And he uh, he replied, yes.
1: Well, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, they expanded on that and had a policy, a paper come out from the Justice Department saying, yes, we would have a right if we felt it was an imminent threat. Well, what does that mean?
0: Well, I mean, that's completely subjective, right? Eric Holder, that's right. Holder, thank you.
1: And that to me was one of the most egregious things an AG has ever said in the history of our republic to say that you can without trial, without due process. They decide Ted Rawl is a danger because Ted Rawl says things that, you know, has, has advocated or whatever, he is an eminent threat, you know, here comes the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something intrinsically un-American about that.
0: Oh, it's a fascist, it's a, it's a, it's a fascist, um, you know, act. Right. I so mean, give
1: yourself, and for the Obama administration, by the folks remember Obama, um, The good president, uh, his administration came out with this policy. Now, again, they they haven't acted on it, as far as we know. (laughs) Um, But that, to me, is terrifying. Now, now we're going to turn our face to the world and demand that they have human rights when, in fact, we live in a country where we can arbitrarily kill people that we think are a threat. I'm sorry, that's just. And people say, well, what if they're you know. What if they're you know they're planning a bomb or something? Then you there's due process. These systems are in place for for to handle situations like that. We don't have to, you know, shoot someone because of what they're thinking or what they're planning to do. That's always been
0: the case in the United States
1: up until recently.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty crazy. So so you're basically saying when practicable, yes, if if it if it works well i mean i kind of think that's like the policy that we have now so you're i mean i mean i think personally i don't think that we should have we should even bother to have human rights be uh, articulated as part as part of foreign policy us foreign policy until we make it an import uh, a really key criteria of us domestic policy which it's not and to me human rights You know, we don't need to start out as widely expansive as I would like, but at basic homelessness, for example, is, you know, the the right to have shelter is a basic human right. The United States should should work much harder. Well, we're not working at all, so we should try to consider this as a major problem and try to address it. Um, I would say also the right not to be harangued, harassed, beaten, or even murdered by the police uh, is also a basic human right uh, that we don't have in this country. And I don't really mean just necessarily racial profiling and uh, you know, that kind of thing, although that's obviously a huge problem, but you know even just the fact that the police are primarily exist uh, as uh, as a way to shake us down for money as opposed to protecting yeah. us and yeah. trying to, you know I mean, <laughs> I gotta say, I mean, those cops in Uvalde would have not hesitated one minute One second to pull over someone in a car to write them a speeding ticket, but they, you know, they weren't going to go in and save kids from a, from an insane, deranged shooter, mass shooter. So, I mean, it sort of shows where we stand. I mean, I think really seriously, we have to get our own house in order before we tell the rest of the world what to do about human rights. Agreed. Okay. So I think we can move on to the third and final segment, which is going to be about red flag laws and uh, their implications. Uh, we're Stick with us. We'll be right back. I actually don't really know. I think I know what Scott you're going to say, but I'm not hundred percent sure. So anyway, so I'm not, I'm far from hundred percent sure. Okay. Anyway, stick with us. Be right back. Thank you for sticking with us uh, for this, the third and final, but not forever, episode uh, <laughs> a segment of, the, uh, of season two, episode one of the DMZ America podcast. Uh, coming to you from the left, I'm cartoonist Ted Rall.
1: And I'm cartoonist Scott Stannis coming to you from the right.
0: And you've probably heard about red flag laws. We just talked about a little bit about you know, in the last segment uh, about the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting. Uh, red red flag laws are now some. Well, there are some already in uh, on the books, and what it basically is is um, a law that uh, you know, we've we've all heard these stories about uh, mass shooters who were acting erratically, uh, apparently mentally ill, who were perhaps posting um, you know weird screeds to uh, Twitter and Facebook, and uh, in in the weeks and days before. Uh, a shooting incident. And so the thought is, you know, kind of like in Minority Report, can we stop crimes before they actually occur? You know, if we tell, if everyone's like, oh my God, look at this guy, he's really crazy. And he has a whole fuck ton of guns and he's making weird threats. Can we stop this person uh, before he shoots up a school uh, and, and, and call the cops and have them come over and at least take his guns away, maybe take him away to the funny house Um, And, uh, you know, these. I I think we're starting to see, and I think the question here is, um, you know, is this what liberals would say is common sense gun control, or is it the beginning of a slippery slope towards authoritarianism?
1: It's a slippery slope. I mean, my God, here's the thing, Ted. I mean, it turns the entire everybody, everybody in the country becomes a junior psychiatrist. We should just issue little... (laughs) Little, so little, you know, little couches for the, and, you know, it's, this is incredibly dangerous that I could, if I don't like my neighbor and they have the yappy dogs, which they do, mm. <laughs> I can just, I can just build a case and say, you know, you need to go, you know, you need to, he needs to be looked into, um, this is, I mean, the slippery slope here. I mean, here's the thing: the shooter in Las Vegas, one of the, you know, the hot, one of the highest body counts of mass shootings in America, and that's that's a high bar nowadays. Um, showed none of the symptoms that you just described. Mm-hmm. It wasn't crazy. They, in fact, they closed the case in terms of trying to find a, a, his motivation. They couldn't figure it out. They still can't. They have no yeah, idea they what, what, he did, what he did. Wait, And for those of you who don't remember, he rented a place. There is a country music festival outdoor festival going on in Las Vegas and the strip he rented a hotel room that overlooked it he broke open the window and just started firing his gun into the crowd don't know why never left
0: a note and he, and he had, had some sort head. of bump and he had sort of some uh, bump stock device that allowed that kind of it turned his semi-automatic rifle into de facto sort of an automatic
1: right so do you really want I mean do you really want your neighbor to be able to turn you in that way now, I don't own a gun. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like that. Well, them. but the
0: they, counterfactual is that there are people like the Uvalde shooter um, who he did exhibit those kinds of warning signs. Uh, right. there's the Aurora Colorado shooter who also exhibited those kinds yeah, of there, warning there signs. There are
1: people like that. And I, I know I've know, I know some around here. Um, I, I think what you have to do is revisit, and you can do this without having this again, a draconian overarching law. Where if you start putting real money, Ted, into mental health in this country, we put none. We've cut it to the bone. In Chicago, Illinois, which you've been to, it's a big city. I don't sure if our listeners know this, but it's a large city. The mayor, Rahm Emanuel, uh, cut to the bone the mental health budget because he could. Because mental health doesn't have an advocate. Mental health doesn't have a lobby. Mental health doesn't give any money to campaigns. So fuck them. You know that's the politician's view of this thing. If we actually started putting money back into that and started to reevaluate our mental health system, and I mean you talked about the homeless in the previous um, the previous segment, and started addressing them in a serious way, started addressing drug addiction in a serious way, started addressing mental health issues in a serious way, well, you know you, you're not going to need to have the thought police. You know you're going what you're going to do is start healing. An issue that has been ignored for years. I mean,
0: well, I mean, y- you might. I think you might still need or want the the thought police. I I think, I mean, because it's you're still, you know, not everyone's going to be swept up, even into a really, uh, you know, well well uh, funded mental health uh, treatment system. But I mean, I think the question is, what about the? I think the trade off is is the trade off worth it? Right, like. Um, you know, I'm not that worried about the government sweeping in and taking away your guns, but I'm really worried about the government sweeping in and taking you away. Um, that, That's exactly what this That does. scares me.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's a component that they can lock you up for X amount of days. Well, you know, those X amount of days, as we all know from history, for those of us who've read it, uh, those days can stretch into weeks, can stretch into months, and can stretch into years.
0: Um and, and look, there's a recent history of that. I remember when I was a kid, um, there was a messy uh, a couple that was undergoing a messy divorce who lived uh, in my neighborhood. And the man. this was in the 1970s. The man had his wife uh, 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 committed to a mental asylum, forcibly, against her will. And that happened all the time. I, I think, you know, I don't know if, if in this particular case, she really was crazy. She certainly didn't seem it to me but as a kid but nobody and no, my mom didn't think so either but there's uh, it happened all the time you know husbands would have their wives sent away you know francis farmer style um you know i mean that's what terrifies well, me there are, it's abuse, like- there are abuses
1: there as well and that's and that's what it was a it was a violent reaction to that which closed most of those places down well you, know, you walk down the streets of New York, you walk down the streets of Chicago, you walk down the streets of LA, you walk down the streets of Birmingham, you can see where that has, we've pay, pay, paid a huge price and these poor souls who need help, need shelter, need food, need need medical attention, aren't getting any of that because we've shut these places down.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, well, we, we had a terrible system and we've replaced it with zero system at all. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so I guess, so we agree, no red flag, li- red flag laws are bad, we gun control should form, uh, should, should, if if we have gun control, it should take us to, to other forms. Out of curiosity, what would you do about guns? We have, I don't know. if we've- I thought uh, Patrick
1: Moynihan, and he's not alone, but he was the f- highest profile person, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Mm-hmm. Um proposed he he thought the second amendment was crystal clear what it implied that everybody person has a right to own a gun doesn't say they have a right to own a bullet so he he <laughs> he actually talked about and I love this idea of just that's taxing, a funny idea taxing the shit out of bullets. That is each bullet's like a hundred bucks or fifteen. I mean,
0: yeah. All right well but on the He's other hand if you're like a mass shooter you don't money. really care about going massively into debt. Well no <laughs> You're like I'm going to put a hundred thousand dollars worth of bullets on my on my on my on my Discover card and get cash back. Oh, you can still do that. Don't forget, countries
1: that have very 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 stringent gun laws have had, you know, the, who was the what was the shooter? Up, went into the um, this political summer camp in Scandinavia somewhere and just went up there and just started shooting away. And you know, in a country that has no one is allowed to have a virtually have a gun of any kind. Yeah, uh, he, he apparently got him. But my my point is that, yes, you're going to have people slip through this. But for the most part, if you had some kind of controls, and frankly, I think taxing bullets makes perfect sense to me.
0: That is it. That's that's an interesting thing. I mean, I do think that uh, there's really no argument whatsoever for people having, um, you know, what they call, what lefties call assault weapons uh, and what righties call long guns. Um, You know, the AR-15 is the old... M16, essentially the M16, uh, you know, rifle from the Vietnam War, and uh, it's the same gun, pretty much manufactured by Colt, and uh, it's a military weapon. It's meant for war. It's not. It has no hunting applications. I think it's one of those things. Like I, I would go further than that, but I do think, uh, uh, you know, I think I think we really need those guns just gone. Um, you know, we could have a government buyback program. We could say you know, turn it in, no questions asked. We don't care if you used it to kill people, 500 bucks each, turn it in now, drop it off at your police station. Um, You know, it's uh, it's, otherwise it's gonna be illegal to own it, stop selling them. Uh, I have a serious problem with with the fact that you don't have to take a gun safety class. Uh, You don't need a license to operate a gun. I mean, that just seems insane. I mean, most states require you to pass a safety test to pilot a boat. (laughs) <laughs> in a lake there's not right. so you know a rifle is a little more dangerous than a boat
1: right but the argument there is that the owning a boat is not constitutionally guaranteed implicitly constitutionally guaranteed
0: that's true um however there are other constitutionally guaranteed rights that do involve licensing for example most cities require a parade permit in order to uh in order to carry out your first amendment Protected right to uh, protest and petition your government. And, uh, and you know, I, I personally don't think they should require a parade permit. I feel like you should be able to just walk down the street with your protest sign uh, and yeah. not be unmolested by the police. But there's a lot of things like that.
1: So, yeah, red flag law is bad.
0: Okay. All right. And with that, uh, we'll wrap <laughs> up this very long-winded episode of the DMZ America podcast. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Scott, where can everybody find your cartoons and other work? I wish you would go
1: to gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis, one word, or gocomics.com slash prickly city and read my comic strip. You can also go to chicagotribune.com slash opinion and see a gallery of the work I do for them. Um, And uh,
0: there you go. Ted, where can we see you? And you can go to gocomics.com slash Ted Rawl, because we're just pitching gocomics.com today. Uh, Also, my own website, rawl.com, where you can see my columns as well as my cartoons. Uh, You can go to uh, also uh, counterpoint.com, which is an email newsletter. Uh, It's a freemium model, so you can get it for free, but you can can see more if you pay a little bit, um, and you'll be supporting... Uh, a, a stable of about uh, 14 uh, political cartoonists at a time when we can really use your help. Uh, so check, cons, please consider checking that out. Thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you again next week or unless something breaks between now and now. Uh This is, uh, uh, I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. I was okay, going to say yeah. something impressive at like the end there. And then I just <laughs> couldn't think of one.
1: Say something in Dutch. That's what sort of sounds Oh, uh, I
0: can't say anything in Dutch. I don't even know Kompens. any Dutch words. What? Klompens. What does that mean? That's the wooden shoes. Ah, uh, I would be like, what, what, coffee shop. That's like the only thing I know. I just do it. Dutch, is, Dutch is a weird language. You, you hear people speaking it far away. You think they're speaking English, but they're not.
1: Just when you think we're done.
0: Okay. All i right. right. We're done. All right. See you next See week. See you later. Bye, Scott. Bye, Ted.